Hello, my name is Jack Elliot Hobbs, and welcome to Unlived Lives, a philosophical YouTube series and podcast in which we explore the lives my guests are not living and why. If you hear any unmotivated sound, it's likely to be my two dogs enjoying life entirely in the present, unaware of any disruption they may be causing. I hope you enjoy listening. in this episode is a professional jazz pianist who divides his time between performing, composing and education work. He is the son of a South African exile and an English aristocrat, whose marriage and the press attention it received led to the South African government of 1968 to declare them prohibited immigrants in South Africa meaning it was illegal for his parents to visit South Africa as a married couple with their children. He says, Their experience has influenced my values, my politics and my passion. I use music as a tool to tackle inequality, challenge prejudice and to create the confidence to carry out these tasks. Pete Latanka, welcome to Unlived Lives. Thank you. So good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming. Why do you have the ambitions you have? Well, I think... Ambition, I feel, is like... um, It's like the water in the ice tray, that you will have it in one bit of your life and you want it in another bit, and it exponentially grows. So I never feel like I'm particularly ambitious to sort of make money. I never feel I'm particularly ambitious to... uh, to, to get my name in more areas. But I think that I love the idea of... As I say, trying to balance up equality, that's my real, that's, that infuses everything. But if I can do that with, you know, with, with, you know, with a trio, or I can do it with a quartet, or I can do it with a quintet, then I can do it with a small ensemble, I can do it with an orchestra, I can do it with, and that, that growth of vision and scale and ambition, I find really exciting, just because it's a bigger train set to play with. Mm. Um, but my ambition, I think, yeah, the, 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 the route through all of it is, is just trying to recontextualize the way I think and use music to not just serve uh, an audience, but actually to have a, to have a far a greater reach in society. What is, why did you choose music to do that? You know, I started playing at five. It was something I'd always done. I can't remember not being able to play the piano. It's like that thing of walking. I can't remember how I couldn't walk. You know, it's sort of, so when I sit at a piano, I feel it's my safest, easiest place. Mm. So I think that that, it wasn't so much I knew from the start that that was my route. As I say, it really was recontextualizing. I had, you know, it was, it was something that had no agenda as a kid. It was just something I did. Mm. And then as I went through and, and, you know, and was performing after music college and just playing and gaining experience. And it was by complete chance that meeting uh, the two people who set up a company called Children's Music Workshop that brought in musicians and really guided them right. to rethink the way they think about music, of sending them into schools in the kind of lowest income areas of London and the, 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 the children who were about to be written off by society and being able to say, rather than just go in there and play music to, at them, mm. why didn't you go, them, go there and see if they can play music with you and also see if they can create music to perform with you? And that was just one of those happenstance, you know, right place, right time, complete luck. And having somebody who had that vision of using musicians for that as, as that tool. So it wasn't, it wasn't really me. I was very much guided mm. to recontextualize the way I think about music. 
Amazing. And that was that, that was that moment that you sort of saw the power of music to do that. Yeah. And I was so cynical about it. You know, I've got two older sisters who have spent my life, them taking the piss out of everything I do. So I'm not earnest mm. in, I, I, but it makes me earnest and it's, and it's, and it's really weird. Cause I went in, you know, as I say, I've, I just, I've always kind of mocked and just found, yeah, just taking the piss out of that sort of earnest kind of behaviour. Mm. And suddenly I see it transform people's lives. I go into a Youth Offenders Institute and I see them standing like this. They can't even make eye contact. They're so knotted. And then we spend a week and their ideas are suddenly being presented. And I always bring in a really nice rhythm section. So whatever they do is got a platform already. So they're kind of, they're, they're, they're already off the ground. And then, but it's their ideas that are, that we're, that we're, that it's their ideas that are driving everything. Mm. And then to, for them to perform it to their peers and to the people in the prisons, they walk out a foot taller. And I can't not see that. I can't unsee that. I can't pretend it's not there or let my natural cynicism say, I take, I can't take the piss out of that one. Sure. Because that is absolutely real. And that's why I think that while we have these huge rates of reoffending and, the money that is being ploughed into this incarceration system and the kind of unanswered question is whether it's rehabilitation, whether it's punishment. Mm. All of those things that haven't been, aren't really clear or vary from prison institute to institute. Um, it's, it's that question of, does law work? Right, right. Because if law worked, nobody would be in jail. <laughs> yes. It's a patch. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think if you can walk out and say... And just remember that moment of having your idea presented and it being really, accept, just being valued mm. is what allows you to move into an interview room and say to the person, I can do this job. And that's, that's half, I think, more and more people doing that, you've halved re-offending re rates. Who valued your opinion as a kid? So where did you learn that from yourself to allow you to... <laughs> To have your opinions. Do you know what? I think I used to, I used to go, my parents used to take me on drives. So weird. Every night, most nights of a week when I was like from eight, nine, ten, mm. I suppose. And it was really weird. We used to just drive around the back lanes of Luton. <laughs> my dad used to take me to sort of Luton airport, which was much, was a small little airport. It's like a sort of cottage airport. So you could drive right up to the runway. It had a kind of tiny little cafe that would serve Nescafe and wagon wheels and stale sandwiches. And you could just go and sit there and look at the planes take off and land. And we used to do this all the time. I was obsessed with aviation as a kid. Mm. And those moments as we drive to those bits, it was all going around the back end of Luton airport. We just used to talk. So we talk all the time with my dad. And then my mum would do the same thing. So weird. I haven't even thought about this for so long. We would just drive and we would talk and talk and talk. I don't know what about. Mm. But also, I think that that was, you know, I think I was a... Um, I realised that you, I could solve all... Not problems because that sounds too big, but just mm. like anything that I was worried about, anxiety, all of those things that I could untangle the knots by talking. Mm. And I think those drives with my parents, and again, the perfect thing of being in a car because you're sitting opposite, you're both, you're not looking at each other. It's not intense. You're just sort of sitting, you know, you're distracted. And then so everything comes out. Mm. And I think the power of, yeah, I realise the power of being able to talk is profound. Mm. Yeah. Who has offered you the most useful career advice? Hmm. The most useful career advice. Um, well, I think, so I lived in America. I spent a year, I won a scholarship to spend a year in America. I had this amazing piano teacher who, you know, he's amazing. You know, he, he's kind of, I think he won the Thelonious Monk Jazz Piano Award. Anyway, it's like the Nobel Peace Prize of the jazz world. So he was extraordinary. And... So he would have always taught me some fascinating things. I also think possibly like a catalyst where you need the perfect temperature, pressure, or conditions for it to work. Mm -hmm. I was, whatever, 19, 20. I was far from home. I was in a place where everything he said really landed. And, and as I say, he, he was such a brilliant, is such a brilliant man. It would have landed anyway, but I think I was incredibly open to it. And he would have, when I was studying jazz in England... It was very, it was like maths. It was just, it was like sort of equations. Play this scale over these chords. This is your chord scale relationships. It was just number crunching. Mm. And when I would go to him and say, 
what what scale should I play over these chords? He'd say, what are you talking about? This, you're, this is not number, this is not maths. This mm. is music, mm. right? You've got to get the, this is, you're so concentrated on the science of it, you've forgotten the soul of it. This stuff is dance music. If you, if you, what you should be looking at is to see whether people's feet are tapping while you're playing. And if you're not, you're dead in the water. It's game over. That's, don't, who cares? Play one note, but make sure it swings. Make sure it moves people. Mm. Otherwise it's pointless. Mm. And, and that balance of getting the science and the soul was brilliant. And because it was probably based on the science that I'd been taught in England to suddenly have this thing, it's not like saying to a painter, um, you know, just use your inspiration and just paint. Mm. They need to be able to draw hands <laughs> or understand the balance of shade and light or whatever the technique. I was going to say, do you, do you think it would work the other way around? Well, I don't know whether it needs, to, whether it necessarily matters what comes first, but I think you just need both. Mm. And I and it was and so that was brilliant. And part of that uh, sort of approach was that when I'd make a mistake, because I think from that point I'd been very binary, I'd had a very classical training, mm. and I felt. I felt that my choices were, I can play this right or wrong. That was my right. real binary thing. Sure. And so when I would make a mistake, my training had just said, I've done it. And he would say, sort of in a lesson, are you still thinking about the mistake you made like five minutes ago? Mm. And he's saying, yeah. And he's saying, because everything, you're, you're playing rubbishly now. You've got to, it's, it's, it's gone. like, it's gone. He's like, that mistake was the least interesting thing you're going to do today. Mm. Do something interesting. I'm, I don't care about that stuff. Make some, make my toe tap. That's more interesting than me sitting here watching you polish your mistakes. It's that thing of you, you can inject, ingest all of the information, all of the technical information that you have that you need to learn about the thing that you want to do. And then you've just got to let it come out of you yeah. rather than thinking, oh, no, I've got to do it in this exact yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. So it goes through you and then it becomes you yeah. rather than you just regurgitating the information. Exactly. And that career advice, that sort of point, has informed every part of my life. And it's, as I say, it's not about me wanting to make... It's not that I'm careless about mistakes or don't care about being clumsy. Of course, you're conscientious. You want to do the best you can. But I'm not going to... I can't be dominated anymore by, by feeling like my, my mistakes are going to haunt me for too long. Mm. I learn from them but they're not going to, I'm not carrying them in my pocket, no way. And you bring that into your teaching? In every, in everything I do. It, mm. it, yeah, it's, it's in everything. Mm. And that's why that guy was so key, because he, it wasn't music he was teaching me. He was teaching me a way of living. What makes you most stressed? <sighs> what makes me most stressed, I would say, is trying to get what I want to do in the time I've got feeling like I'm not being, I'm not using my time. Well, I think that's the hard thing is always, you know, so, so but my thing of dividing my career between these three bits of being a performing musician, composing and education work, that is, that's a, that, it, I used to feel like it was plate spinning. Mm. So I used to feel I was constantly moving between being the jack of all trades. And I always wanted to be the jack of all trades, but the master of them all. Mm. And I and to, and that required me to constantly move between the spinning plates to keep them up. And that I found really stressful. What I'm better at doing now, I think I realize is that they're not three, they're not going with the plate analogy. Mm. I'm not quite sure, but they're not three sticks, plates, right? Yeah. It's all, it's, I don't know. I can't work out. How it's one plate with different segments. <laughs> right. Or something. Right. You know, they all connect. They all absolutely. And they, yeah. And so it's not, and I think that shift in my head about thinking about my career and my approach to music really changed everything. When was that shift? Mm, f five years ago. Wow. Quite recently in that I've been doing this for whatever, 25 years or something. Mm. And I guess five years ago, this suddenly like, Okay, this, yeah. And I think my stress was much worse then. And I think I, and so my stress now is just making sure that I remember that this is all part of it and... Coming back to that idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, so Benjamin Brisson, he got, a, he, he got an award that was presented to him in Aspen in 19, I think 74. And when he accepted it, he talked about the, th the, the, the three elements of musicianship. 
And he said, what you need for music to happen is you need a composer, you need a performer, and you need an audience. Mm. Now, I misheard that and I misunderstood what he was saying because I thought he'd said to be, the, to be a musician, you need to be part composer, part performer, part audience. It's only since going back to the speech and thinking, oh my gosh, I've been misquoting him for years to myself and to others. But what I think my mistake has actually really helped me, right? There's, you know, apparently Albert Einstein said, well, how did you discover the law of relativity? And he said, I, I ignored an axiom. He'd made a mistake. That's how he discovered this thing that changed the world. And for me, it was exactly the same. This mistake that, that made me suddenly realise that it's, it's not separate. It's all, just as we're saying, it's all mm. part of the same thing. And it's all this trinity of, you know, geometry is not my strength, but to have like, to be a rounded person, you need to have this, mm. you need to have this trinity within the circle, right? Or indeed a content person. To be a content person. Yeah. But to have that, all those bits of music being, yeah, in one. Mm. That was that that has been really useful to discover. And the sharing of that knowledge to children and, and sort of adults and beyond yeah. is is part of that. Obviously. Absolutely. And I hope like me that they that they spill it into those other parts. So if you're somebody who wants to spend your life choosing to polish the rocks that people have thrown at you. Right, like we all do this. Mm. Look at this one. This is, this is, this is what happened to me when I, you know, it's so yeah, tempting. Absolutely, I'm so good at it too. You should see my collection. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like there's a, there's, yeah, there's, there's a real danger in that. And if I, and you know, I, with all these people that I work with, I often work with teachers or singers or whoever, non-professional musicians, who will say, when I was a kid, the, 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 the music teacher said something to me and I've never recovered. Mm. What's the what's the most prevalent polished rock that you have? Oh God, I've got so many. First one that comes to mind. Okay, the first one comes to mind is my doing grade five piano and sight reading, which I was still am shocking at. Mm. And my piano teacher just saying, all you've got to do is keep going through it. Just keep going through it. So I was murdering whatever the piece that gives me <laughs> to play. <laughs> Getting worse and worse. Like, I think I got the clock the first bar, and that was great. Then I had to get through the other 31. <laughs> it was just, oh, it was shocking. And it was, yeah, and I just thought, just keep going, keep going. And I was kind of, you know, hunched up in the examiner sitting behind me, and then I suddenly heard him go, <laughs> And I was like, whatever, 13, 12, I don't know. <laughs> this, grown, this grown man laughing. <laughs> At this thing, and I mean, it was amazing because it was so outrageous. It was so outlandish that I remember turning around and us both laughing because I was—I don't know what he was laughing. I was laughing at the fact that as a thirteen-year-old kid, a grown man's going to laugh when you're doing your best. That's an amazing one. But again, I don't know. I—they I, now—they seem, and I think they always have seemed funny these kind of mad moments i don't they're not the reason i don't want to sight read they're not the reason i can't play the piano they're not the reasons i put them in a different bag and that bag is simply that says these are really out your question this is a pretty outrageous thing that's happened to me sure and it's a different and it's such a nice for me it's a better box than saying this is why i can't do dot dot, dot. when did you put them in the bag I think pretty quick. I right. think I again with these two sisters who used to constantly take the piss oh, out, okay, laugh at yeah. me. I was I, I I had they'd given me a lot of things to put in the bag mm. of the outrageous things that have happened, and I don't know. I mean, I think it's a real. I think it is testament to my parents as well, who I think brought me up in such a way. And again, you know, all those family dynamics. I'm the youngest of and being very much. I just felt incredibly loved, and I felt incredibly secure within that and and i think that allowed me to be able to put in that box that says this is simply the most outrageous things that have happened to me i mean that, that sounds, feels, conce sounds conceited no that feels like a sort of method of of keeping calm and putting it to one side yeah. do you have a technique for keeping calm well there's a i think partly there's a practicality so that teacher again in America, we were all, all students, we were reading a book by Kenny Werner 
And it was like sort of this Zen Buddhist approach to improvisation. Mm. This thing about walking this tightrope with this, without really a safety net, with an audience. <laughs> you know, everything that is terrifying. And we were all trying to read it. And it was all sort of being in the moment. And, mm. and I'd said to him during one piano lesson, should I read this book? Because everyone, we're all, all my mates are reading it. And him saying, I don't know, why don't you go and pick some flowers? And then come back and let's just carry on playing the piano. <laughs> and, and it was nice because he was this, you know, I love the practicality of it. Mm. That he had this sort of thing where he was, you know, that he wasn't sort of, he wasn't kind of macho. But it, he, was, he had a practicality, which again was really useful to me. And I'd come back to music college and I'd see these people who had clearly been picking their fair share of flowers, mm. spending ages getting the right approach. And I never understood why this arm would waggle, what it gave to them. And me just thinking, I just want to do my job. There's a practicality here that I need to just do my job. Right. And I always have that when I'm performing, when I'm presenting, whatever I'm doing, there's this thing that clicks in that says you can back into the spotlight mm. and be like, turn away from it you're kind of backing into it because you're putting yourself into that position. Or you can just walk into it and just have a few moments before the light hits you that says, do your job, and yeah. then you just do it. And it's like getting into a cold swimming pool. Once you're in it, you're in it. Um, and I think that is my real technique of dealing with that. Amazing. <laughs> That's, uh, that sounds effective. And when did you, and you, you figured that out from your time with him? Yeah, and I think that type, that really, yeah, that moment of him saying, yeah, sort of pricking the pomposity of being a bit too precious, that's a lot of P's, for, for, for in music. Mm. I think that in any art, I think you have to be so careful of that. And piano is such an odd one because it is, you know, it's not like, it's not a voice, it's not your, it's not your, it's not coming through you. Mm. It's not as per, it's, I mean, of course it's personal, but it's not like, I don't know, like I, when I hear the vibrato and just think, such a personal thing, vibrato, mm. whether that's from your body or whether that's how you approach a string instrument or whatever. The piano doesn't have that. Mm. It's a machine. You know, it's a machine that you are, an op that you are operating. Mm. I know that you're doing that with the violin and voice and all of those things, but there's something really technical. I don't know whether this makes sense, but there's... Expression. <sighs> expression, but it feels... When I play the piano, sorry, I have those moments when I'm sort of, when, when I'm really there and it disappears, and the instrument disappears and I'm in ecstasy, I'm flying out mm. of it. But a lot, and that's an amazing moment to happen when, it's, when you're performing, but a lot of it, I'm looking at an iron frame. I'm looking at something made of wood and iron that I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to tune like you would a train. Mm. It's like, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like a steam engine. It's a piece of mechanical equipment and your job is the, playing perform person performing on it is to be able to turn that into art mm. and i think again that also helps that balance between um between the practicality of it and the, the sort of artistry of it would you prefer to be a psychoanalyst or a doctor <laughs> wow um God, that's a really interesting one. I mean, okay, do you mean practically? Like, I suppose the thing about, okay, the practicality of my father was the doctor. So I would see him very much, I would see that what, what, what dealing with death, I think, does to somebody. Mm. And... I think he was a brilliant doctor. He—he he was. I've, I hear so many stories about him being a brilliant doctor, and probably using both those those techniques. As a, a guy in a pub, some a local pub came up to me and brought me a drink right after my father died, and said, "You know, he was, he he said he was why well, he was an amazing doctor." And we, I didn't know this guy, and he said, "When I was a kid, I went in there, and I had to have uh, inoculation. I had to have whatever my shot was. And I was mm. so nervous about it, and I walked in and I was crying." And I remember your dad sort of, you know, I was sitting on his couch thing, whatever. 
and your dad was kind of rolled up my sleeve and he was saying, why, what's the problem? Why are you crying? And while he was doing this, he was kind of swabbing, preparing the area and he was saying, I was saying, I just don't want to have this thing and I'm scared. My, and you said your father was just kind of, you know, swabbed it all, getting it all ready, getting the injection ready and saying, what? But I don't understand why... What's the big deal? It's just an injection, sort of. Mm. And him to boy saying, I just, because it's going to really hurt that sort of, meanwhile, injecting the stuff in him. Mm. But I don't think it is going to hurt, kind of clears up the thing. <laughs> I think it's like these things, it's more like a scratch. It's not kind of puts a plaster on. Boy saying, I know, but I don't want to pop. I think it's going to pop me. And he says, you know, it's, it doesn't really, it's just a scratch. You never need to really worry about that stuff. And the boy saying, I just don't want it today. And then my father had said, okay, look, the sun is shining. When you go out and play, you come back to me next time when you feel ready and we'll do it then. And the boy saying, okay, that's a good idea. And sort of walked out with this already in his arm. <laughs> you know, and I think those things, that was a fascinating idea of medicine. And I'd love to do that. And my father loved the science and the people. So I think he was, he loved that approach, which was, yeah, that it was, it had all those elements of uh, sort of investigating the mind as well as the body. Mm. Um. I think that the toll, the, the toll it can take is that you're dealing with death every day. Sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's not, but mm. you're dealing with it. And I think that can be quite taxing. And I guess also as a, did you say psychologist or psychoanalyst? Psychoanalyst. That you're also dealing with, you're dealing with, they're all big things to unpack. <laughs> and gosh, that's a long answer to a short question again, but... I think I feel like I think I would do better possibly or enjoy more psychoanalyst. Right. Simply because that if because you've got more chance of being able to battle possibly the demons than you have a really vicious cancer. Sure. Um and I think I'd find that easier. I think I wouldn't I think I'd I wouldn't be so worn. I it gives I feel like it gives it would give me more room for hope. I'm no psychoanalyst, but um, I have experience of being a patient of one, and and probably the the most extreme, uh, you know, patient will potentially contemplate suicide. Yeah, and so dealing with that as a yeah. psychoanalyst versus dealing with perhaps the inevitable death yeah. of cancer. Yeah, so it's it's really curious. That it, it both have that extreme you're going to have to deal with that yeah and that's your job yeah and the th and the thing about suicide you know martin amos wrote in the in, in in his autobiography and he talks about suicide and says it's it's what happens when you can't bear life mm. and if life could be and it's not a choice because if life could be born you would bear it mm. right so it's just like it's something when you can't it's it's unbearable so it's funny that thing because because I in my in my, the the thing I'm talking about with the capacity of hope is that you'd hope that you'd be able to talk somebody down from a ledge. Sure, you'd hope you'd be able to bring them back from the precipice, which you can't negotiate when you've got a really vicious cancer. Mm. Um, but if I go with Martin Amos's idea, which is that it's when life it's not a choice; it is it's your only action. I don't know. Yeah, <clears throat> maybe I'm wrong to think about it being having the hope to do that. I just feel like you've got a bit more negotiating space because at least you can open a dialogue. And if that person that you're speaking to, and I, what I what do I know? I know nothing about this, but I feel like you you can't negotiate with cancer. Mm. So is it that it would be more difficult for you to solve? Yeah, and the and. Yeah, there's just less you can do. And I think that, I just think that, you know, I just think as a psychoanalyst, I just wonder whether there's always the potential that the next day the sun could shine. Mm. You know, you could suddenly feel it. That person, your patient, might suddenly get it on their back again. Yeah. What music has influenced your attitude to life? <laughs> well, okay. So I would say there are there are two examples I always think about with these ideas, which is Robert Browning, a Victorian poet, said that a person's reach should always extend 
A person's reach must always be, sorry, a person's grasp must be always beyond their reach. Otherwise, what is a heaven for? Sure. The idea that always go for something, don't go for what's in your reach. Stretch, mm. see if you can go for it. Risk it. Mm. And, and there's a real beautiful humanity in that. And the two pieces I always think that really show that are Miles Davis's album uh, from the Prestige album. There's a song called... Uh, um, it never entered my mind. And there's this bit where he does this octave leap and he splits the note as he's doing it. Da, 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 da. Mm. And it kills me. And maybe he did it on purpose to really kill me. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he just missed it. Mm. But there's something in that that I think is the sound of the most beautiful part of humanity, which is that thing that is just wanting to be beyond where you are which is what gets us to the moon, which is what gets us to be able to all these extraordinary inventions, is this thing of saying, yeah, we could, yeah, you've pretty much got some things that float on the sea, that's pretty good. But let's, what if we could ever get into the air and think, yeah, amazing, amazing, we can fly, look at this patchwork we're flying over. What if we could get higher than that? And we're always, I mean, I just think that is so exquisitely human and and it doesn't matter whether you fail. Again, it's back to that thing about the, the taking away the mistakes. That not who cares. Mm. You go for it. That's the beauty. And I think that. And then there's another William Walton piece called um, uh, "Touch Her Soft Lips and Part," which was the soundtrack to Henry V, the, the old Laurence Olivier. Uh, and he does the same thing of the big jump. That's an orchestra who don't go for the split, but it's still the leap. It's still the leap of faith. And that, you know, I'm not particularly tied to a fixed religion, mm. but I think the leap of faith in any religion is is utterly beautiful. What have you got just beyond your reach at the moment? Um, <laughs> tomorrow. I think what is just be is is everything. You know, mm. it's it's. I never feel I never feel. Um, never feel depressed by things being beyond my reach. Mm. Like I always feel like I'll, I always have hope. I always feel like I'll get there. And whether that is tomorrow, whether that's whatever. And I guess that's, again, it's all this thing. I don't feel like I necessarily need hope. I never feel myself in that kind of needing it, but mm. I appreciate it while it's there. And I mean, I'm just, I, 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 I've landed this job, which is, provides me with that thing that I'm always, I'm always aiming for the thing that's just out of my reach, mm. whatever I'm working on, whether it's working with an orchestra and then I get to sit down and think, how do I get, what happens, what's the colour that if you mix, if you blend clarinets and bassoons, mm. how do I, and do I do it in unison or do I do something? And the joy of putting that on paper and then having that realised by an orchestra. Mm. I mean, it's, a, I'm smug. <laughs> I mean, but it's it's just like, boy, I couldn't believe I would get this job that allows that stuff to happen, which, you know, I'm always slightly nervous about it because, you know, you have so many things that don't quite go to plan. And the stuff that's just out of reach, that's what drives you. Yeah, yeah. And, and so far in life, I feel like I'll get there. And I guess, I don't know, maybe later in life, you have those moments where you suddenly think... I don't think I'm going to get there. And even if I do, what's the point? Mm. And that must be really hard. There's a, um, there's a book that the opening line is a woman says, I've been thinking about all my past uh, lovers and whether they saw me as a, as a, as a hill who's a, whose view didn't, didn't um, warrant the ascent. <laughs> I mean, that, that's big, right? Mm. Whose view didn't warrant the ascent. I mean, that's harsh for her to think of herself like that. But I still, and maybe that is when it, when life becomes really tricky, is then you suddenly think, even if I get there, I don't think it's worth it. Mm. Oh boy. But at the moment, I feel absolutely it's going to be worth it. Do you wish to leave something behind? I don't know. I think, um, I don't want to, I don't want to put that, I don't want to put, I don't rather put that burden of pressure on myself and because again it's I don't want to end game I don't want to be thinking about legacies 
mm. my legacies. I don't want to live my life. Actually, I don't know. I do want to... I, I... Oh, God. Okay. The thing about leaving something behind is that I think there is that part of, you know, you want to come into the world, I think, and try and and try and change it, make it better, improve people's lives. I do. I'm also aware that you go to a funeral and a lot of funerals, you the, the body's in the ground and then you come out and you eat cucumber sandwiches and then you go home and you talk about them for two or three days and then the next day you talk about Strictly or Bake Off. Mm. And... That happens to a lot of people. Mm. And that doesn't mean that you live your life without thinking that you're, that you don't worry that they'll talk about you for three days after you die. But I don't want to live my life constantly thinking about what's going to happen after I've gone. Sure. Right? Yeah. I just, and, and I guess the hope is you make something, you do have some kind of ripple. All we, you know, we want to have those stories that somebody says, like that piano teacher who, in America, who has informed so much. It would be lovely if somebody does, if somebody feels that that has happened. Only, not for not for vanity, not for this kind of thing of just ah, da, da, but absolutely just because, you know, these gifts, humanity, I think, is continuing to give gifts on. We share all of these things. That's mm. what makes us, I think, is what makes us human. Um, I don't think that answers your question. <laughs> What do you know about your ancestors beyond your great-grandparents? On my father's side from South Africa, I know I know somebody who goes back to somebody called Daniel Latanka, who was one of the founder members of the ANC. So he was kind of, he was a, was a journalist and ran a newspaper. And, um, and quite interestingly, he'd been sort of, the ANC came over to England in, I think, 1922 or something to talk to the king about land reform in South Africa. Mm. So he was really, he was, he was absolutely trying to bring about fairness. He's just trying to bring about fairness. Mm. And he's, and, you know, and then for him in whatever, 1994, long after he died for that, that group that he put together the ANC brought about democracy in South Africa is pretty amazing. Mm. That That's something I'm incredibly proud of. On my mother's English side, I, it's, um, I don't know that far back. I mean, it's all, I think it is all, you know, it's all, it's all sort of documented about my great grandparents who did, you know, I think one of them beat Gladstone in the house of Lords in some election, mm. all of that stuff. But I don't, I don't know so much about them. Mm. Um, yeah, going that far. I think actually there was a guy. So, so my mother's family, as I said, were titled. And I think what, one of the reasons they did that title, they received the title because they really put in something about, they, did, they were ironworks up in Bradford mm. and they did something with the workers. And I'm not sure quite what the, the, the law that they changed, but they really looked after their workers and, and put protection... They give they they kind of put protection of the workers in the sort of law. Mm. So I think they did really good things, and again, is why they got this title. You know, great grandparents. That's beyond great grandparents. That's quite a long way away. Yeah, and yeah. That's a that's left a mark on you. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So many years later, talking about legacy. Yeah. So you leave stuff behind. Yes. Yeah. And I wonder whether I just wonder whether the things you leave behind, whether that the, you leave the ones that last longest are the things you didn't expect to leave behind. Mm. You know, and I guess that's that thing is that for that ancestor in South Africa to start the ANC, I don't, I doubt he died thinking. I hope, I doubt he died thinking one day this will lead to 1994 elections. Mm. Any more than I doubt that that ancestor who was doing something with a bullet works and thought it was. Just, the ironworks and making bullets and stuff <clears throat> was a, <laughs> was a, um, that thing of protecting the workers would lead to a title that would still carry on down this that family. Mm. I'm sure that they just lived their lives, and I hope they just lived their lives, and these things were suddenly recognised and valued. 
Do you see what I mean? Sure. And, and I guess that's the thing is, I guess that's what I'm trying to say about that thing about being conscious about a legacy mm. is I think it probably gets in the way of what you're trying to do. What you're trying to do. And so in what ways are you happy to be good enough? Well, that's an interesting one because I really remember being with my really dear friend in London in <clears throat> whatever, 15, 20 years ago, and we'd both just released albums 15 years ago and we were in Tower Records, <laughs> you know, like when that existed in Piccadilly Circus. And I remember going to Tower Records 10 years before, going to the jazz sections and just buying as many CDs as I could on these things. And then we walked around and I said, look at this. And there I went through the L section. Look, there's my album. And then we were kind of goofing around and I was kind of showing it to everyone. You know, look, uh, you know, <laughs> just being, being idiots. And her saying to me, oh, and she had the same thing. There was her one. And she said to me, the thing is, like, this is, you know, this is nothing, right? We're not, it's just one album. It's, it's not, we're not on the shelf. We, we should be on that table where they put out all the best albums. Mm. We're not there. And I remember saying to her, but let's not endgame this so much that we're only going to be content until we're on that shelf there because it's pretty bloody amazing to have spent, wandered these aisles as a kid to suddenly see my name amongst my heroes is a big deal. Mm. And, and that felt good enough. And that doesn't mean I feel like, so I don't need to try and get onto that table. Mm. But I'm also so aware of, um, God, I sound smug and conceited. But it's not that. It, it is just that thing of, I feel a real purpose. And I feel, as I say, I'm moving towards that stuff. My, mm. my grasp is beyond my reach, but I'm getting there. I'm working every day to get there. And, then I, and I feel really content in that. And I feel like it's good enough. And there's a balance. And there's a balance. I know, because you, what you don't want to do is sit back on your laurels and think good enough is your peak. Mm. You're, you're halfway up the view and up the, the mountain, you're, you're, ascent, you're halfway up your ascent. Mm. And to think that that view is warrants that when there is the top, I still, I'm still hungry for the top. <laughs> do you have a... Did you have, and do you still have that infinite goal? A infinite goal. Yeah, and, I, and it's not a single thing. And it is, it is just beyond my reach, which is what gets me up, which is what makes me so excited every day to think, what does the day bring? What work am I going to do? What possible things might come up? What it doesn't, you know, again, it, the failure, I don't care about the failure. I think the, the journey is so fascinating to me. I did all this stuff years ago, trying to, we were going to be on TV and we had all these meetings with ITV studios and they would take us wine and dine us at the, whatever those fancy restaurants are called, the, the Ivy. Mm. It's just amazing. I mean, hilarious to sit. I never thought I'd be sitting in the Ivy being wine and dined by the <laughs> ITV studio. Exactly. And, and it didn't come off. But I never felt, oh, I've wasted all this mm. time. This is never going to, I never felt that. I genuinely was like, that was extraordinary to have done that. Mm. It was in that box that said extraordinary things that have happened to me. Sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's amazing. But it's never this box that says, and this is why I can't. Mm. <laughs> attitude. It's just attitude. Mm. Yeah. And again, that's... I might sound completely naive, but I feel like that is why that idea about being a psychoanalyst you've got more potential to change because if, I don't know, I don't know what I'm talking about, mm. but I just wonder with so many things, maybe not as deep or as big or as traumatic as the potential of suicide. But I think there are so many things that, you know, attitude can really change people's lives. And you can't get an attitude to a cancer that says, I'm going to really think, you can't, mm. I don't think it works like that to a degree. I mean, we don't know much about all that stuff yet, mm. but I just think the potential of the potential of attitude is extraordinarily extraordinarily powerful because it determines your actions. Absolutely. And it's funny because you know you, I sit here myself and I suddenly feel like god I sound like a Hallmark card. You know life isn't what you isn't getting what you want it's wanting what you get. Well, well mm. is that the right way around? Mm. You know and it seems sort of it seems simplistic and it sounds naive mm. and it sounds it can be but I don't think it is. I really do. I really, 
that's my that's my feeling like my sisters are going to be laughing at me but the fact of the matter is i believe all this mm. i genuinely believe it you mentioned extraordinary things that have happened to you do you believe you live an ordinary or an extraordinary life i think i i think i lead an extraordinary life um and i think so many of us do i think just to be alive is pretty extraordinary mm. you know all those things that you that just the fact of being we you know it's such a it's such a miracle life that the fact that 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 the, the conception can take place all those things that vet that can go wrong yeah. and the fact that it goes right you know people who lose children we lost a child we had a pretty awful time with all of that and it made me again realize wow life is so precious mm. you know that it's it's um when it happens you've 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 already won it you're already extraordinary just by being here. Mm. And I think all those things that come out after it, again, this thing of, you know, I, you, yeah, the, 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 just that, yeah. My father used to drive me on those drives. He'd say to me, it's amazing. Like, here we are in this car. It's like, it's like, it's not like a carriage. You don't feel the wind in your face. If somebody had said to you a hundred years ago, one day you'd be able to drive beyond whatever the speed of a horse, beyond 20, 30 miles mm. an hour. You go 70 miles an hour, you wouldn't even feel the wind. You can go, but also you can press turn something and you can have an orchestra play to you. You can hear, it's not like 40 musicians, but mm. it'll be, it'll play it all around you and you're moving through space at 70 miles an hour with an orchestra playing and you don't even feel it. <laughs> I mean, that's extraordinary. Mm. Are you excited about future technology? I, I'm massively excited because I'm fascinated to see where we're going to go. Anything in particular? Flying cars. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, you know, that I'm obsessed with all that stuff. Again, that's my late night Googling. Mm. I've been looking 2021's best hover cars. <laughs> thing is, we laugh. But, and you would have been laughed at in the example you just gave. Right. And... <laughs> I mean, I, again, it's, it, 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 it's so exciting. Mm. It's so exciting to be alive. Mm. It's so exciting to, um, yeah, just to have all these things coming your way. It's bloody we, cool. We've talked previously on, uh, uh, I've got this sort of idea that I sort of stick with, the idea that convenience kills. Yeah. So what do you think we lose with this exponential technology and the convenience that it brings us? It's interesting. So I'm working on a project right now with WWF, um, not the wrestlers, sadly, but the wildlife. Fund. And we're talking about the rainforest. And we've been talking about... I, 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 that phrase, convenience kills, keeps coming up in the conversations that I'm having with the people right. I'm working with. I really... Um, I, it keeps coming up. And, um, and what we're creating with, uh, with the rainforest for that convenience is exponential loss. And I kind of, you know, we talk all about the dangers of exponential growth, mm. but exponential loss is terrifying mm. in that, you know, you, you, you chop down great swathes of the rainforest, you affect climate change, brings the, the amount of water in, in the atmosphere is reduced, or the amount of rainfall is reduced. Then you have these fires that burn, natural, man-made, and they burn more swathes of it. But because there's no water and rain, they could burn for longer. Mm. And then they burn for longer, and so you lose more bits, and then you're chopping. And this sort of downward spiral is terrifying of exponential loss. And I think if we, if we were able to re... If we were able to refrain... Re, sorry, reframe the way we look at all of these things and the danger of convenience killing, and for that to be front and centre of government decisions mm. across the world. I think, yeah, that, that's, that's, our next that's our next challenge. Um, and yeah, and again, that little, this, this, these drip feeding, what I'm trying to do with that music is, with my music, is trying to, spark all of these conversations you know because suddenly you could be ambushed it could just be that one kid who's 
whatever thought suddenly realized by putting their hand up and saying, I want to play this, does this thing work on a xylophone? And that thing suddenly being presented or a prisoner coming, having that, whatever those moments of transformation are, Mm. if that's the person that somehow was in the right place at the right time, that suddenly you have this kind of amazing, um, that might challenge the status quo, that might change all of these things. To change attitudes. And change attitudes. And then, and again, as we're saying, attitudes are so key. Mm. If you challenge those attitudes, yeah, the, the potential to the potential is enormous. Speaking of potential, who or what might have stopped you from becoming your full potential? Um, the thing is, I feel like I'm tenacious, and I feel like I'm rubbish at taking no for an answer. Mm. And I think whatever they say, you build me a. 20 foot wall and I'll make you a 20 foot ladder I feel like I will always find my way around it mm. that struggle that I had with piano playing the piano my piano teacher was great she always used to say you can't have your cake and eat it being that you can't be a jazz pianist without learning scales arpeggios harmony how it all fits together and how you work this machine of a piano and, <clears throat> and my question my retort wasn't a retort my Further question was just to say, why not? I want it. Mm. Want to have my cake and eat it. And that, again, that attitude, which is always saying, I'm not going to buy your, I'm not going to buy your negativity. You leave it on the table. I'm not, you can put it there, but I, it doesn't resonate with me. There's no, just, it's, I'm boring to me. I and mean, why would I put that in my pocket? Mm. And yeah, I think I've always had that attitude that says, I'm going to, if you, maybe all you're telling me is that you can't do that. That doesn't mean I can't do it. Mm. I, you know, I reckon I can find, I can build a bigger ladder than this. Yeah, I think I've always, I think that I, I, even if things have been put in my play uh, to barriers or boundaries, I would always be, (laughs) I would always be finding ways to negotiate that. Pete Latanker, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been absolutely wonderful to have such a great chat. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this exploration into Pete's unlived life, make sure to give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel for a new episode every Wednesday. Have you considered any of these questions yourself? Let me know in the comments section. I hope you enjoyed watching. Mm-hmm.